The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it's my pleasure to welcome Ms. Harriet Bihar. She is an organic farmer, inspector, educator, and the Farmer Services Consultant for the Organic Farming Association, which is an independent nonprofit association that supports organic farmers. She is also one of the most knowledgeable organic experts in the country. For over 40 years, Ms. Bihar has been an organic educator with the University of Wisconsin and the Midwestern Organic Sustainable Education Service, now known as Marble Seed. As an organic inspector, she has visited thousands of organic operations. Importantly, Ms. Bihar served on the National Organic Standards Board from 2016 to 2020 and was the chair of that board in 2019. Ms. Bihar worked at the cooperative that became Organic Valley for their first eight years as the marketing coordinator, and she and her husband have managed Sweet Springs Farm in Gaysville, Wisconsin, where their organic certified farm produces bedding plants, vegetables, herbs, and small grains, eggs, and honey. Today, our conversation is going to center around the new organic livestock and poultry rules and what that means for consumers in the marketplace. Welcome, Harriet. Hello, Melinda. Before we dive into the new livestock and poultry rules, Harriet, I was hoping you could provide our listeners with a little background. Why did you personally become a certified organic farmer? So many reasons, partially some for my own health, but really seeing that Nature is a complex and exquisite living organism, and how wonderful to use nature's tools to produce our food rather than trying to kill things in order to produce food. I'm also a strong conservationist. I'm a birder. I love being out in nature. And I would say that's really what brought me to organic farming was having a type of agriculture where you worked with nature rather than against her. Well, you are surrounded by the strong organic consumer base in Wisconsin. But what I find is that many consumers come to me with skepticism about organic. I believe that organic food and farming benefits both our planet and personal health But I'm curious to know, what do you tell consumers who are skeptical about the organic label food and farming? Sometimes people are skeptical because they've heard things that there's not good implementation, that there's inconsistency. And I would have to say that we're talking really about only about 5% of the organic products out there that might be inconsistent between farm to farm. There's a very strong and deep enforcement capability within the National Organic Program and the USDA to protect that word organic. And those of us in the organic community are always working with the government to make sure that the organic rules are implemented consistently and that the rules are 
strong and understandable and enforceable. So let's talk about USDA's new livestock and poultry rules. Why did we need new rules? At the National Organic Standards Board level, it took about 15 years of discussion in the public eye with the National Organic Standards Board, really hashing out all of these different rules and regulations. And, you know, there was those who didn't really want strict rules, but the vast majority did want to have organic be the gold standard for animal welfare in the marketplace. And so that's what this new rule is doing is basically matching or exceeding a lot of the other private certifications for animal welfare, for poultry and cattle and dairy animals, sheep and swine. I have seen labels that have certified humane right next to USDA organic. So if I'm understanding you correctly, what this organic livestock and poultry standards final rule does is it make sure that those humane practices are going to be incorporated into the USDA organic certified seal. The previous organic rule until this one is implemented had wording where it said must be able to express natural behavior. Animals must be treated in a way to lessen stress. It was very general, but now we have actual stocking rates and how many exit doors there must be in a poultry house and how much soil the animals must have access to with a very detailed and enforceable number. So it's not just a qualitative rule, but also a quantitative rule, which closes a lot of loopholes. And it makes the playing field much fairer among organic farmers. So if there was one organic farmer who was truly providing a humane space for their livestock and poultry, they would not be edged out by somebody who was doing it faster and cheaper, but still getting that certification. And that makes me wonder about the certifiers who sign off on some of these practices that were not really up to organic standards. What happens to those certifiers? This actually offers certifiers a clearer path to enforcing the rule, because if they were challenged by a farmer that said, my animals are not stressed out, and I consider a porch the outdoors, and then when the USDA says, well, maybe the porch is okay, and didn't say that porches were not considered the outdoors. These are screened-in porches where the poultry, usually layers, are not even touching soil. They're in an enclosed porch with a wooden deck and a roof. So the USDA allowed things because they felt that the rule was not detailed enough that if someone took them to court, they would lose. And so over time, those who wanted less strict regulations kept pushing and pushing and getting the rules almost ridiculous, like having porches be outdoors. Or I even saw some operations that just said, well, we open the windows and the sun can kind of come in once in a while. They're getting wind. That's the outdoors. 
And so without the specificity that we now have in the rule, specifically saying that a porch is not outdoors, then we were kind of left with the rule deteriorating and the enforcement deteriorating on what the spirit of the law had been. Right. Well, I think consumers need to trust that certified organic label. And so the way I look at it is this is just one more step to assure us in the marketplace that, yeah, you are going to spend more for the chicken that's labeled certified organic versus the one that's labeled natural. But there are big differences and they're going to take place. Was it January of 2025? So they become what's called effective, meaning that they go into place. So anyone who is certified after January 2024, newly certified, they have to follow the rule. In 2025, those who are currently certified have to modify their operations to come into compliance. And then there's another extension for poultry Laying operations have until January 2029 to meet the outdoor requirements, the stocking density, the number of exit doors, and the access to soil and vegetation requirement. They have five years, and the broilers is the same, except they don't have to meet the indoor stocking density requirements until that long. So layers have to meet the indoor stocking densities within a year. So that's giving the current operations some time to come into compliance, but not allowing new people who come in to have that extended compliance time. If they come into organic as a new operation, they have to meet the rule in January, 2024. Okay. Let's step back to that consumer and the poultry case. There are two chickens available. One is natural and one is certified organic. Tell me why it's worth the cost. What does that certified organic seal mean to me, the consumer? First of all, I wanted to say that the vast majority of operations were following the spirit of the law, but there were some large industrial operations many of whom stood up at the National Organic Standards Board meetings and said, we purchased failed poultry houses and we came in and we just started feeding those chickens organic feed, but we can't meet outdoor requirements because there's no space outside. And so it was those operations that were not really meeting the spirit of the rule that brought down the standards, but the vast majority of the operations who are raising chicken, those chickens are outside. I'm a certified organic operation. Our chickens are outside every single day, even in the winter. So I just want to say that it's not every operation is going to need to change what they're doing. It's only really the larger industrial operations that kind of moved into the organic market based on price rather than philosophy. Mm. But the organic chicken is usually outside, scratching in the soil, getting earthworms, moving around, flapping their wings. And the flavor 
is so much more pronounced than an animal that has never been outside and had the sun on their backs. I think they're somewhat healthier too because they're not highly confined. Just like humans, if you stayed indoors all the time with thousands of other humans, you would probably get sick. But that's not what happens on an organic operation. And this is also too for cattle. For all types of ruminants, they are mandated to be on pasture. And savvy consumers know that when animals are eating fresh green grass, both their meat and their milk are higher in omega-3 fatty acids and CLAs and, you know, all these wonderful things that basically because these animals evolved to be outdoors, they're healthier when they are in that environment. Right. One of the reasons why I like to choose organic products of all kinds, but organic livestock for sure, is because those animals are not eating GMO or genetically modified feed. And to me, the big issue with the genetically modified feed is the fact that it has been sprayed repeatedly with an increasing number of herbicides. But there are producers who they're not certified organic. Maybe they'll call their birds sustainably raised or naturally raised. And they promote the fact that they're feeding non-GMO feed And I called one of the feed producers here in the Midwest, and I said, do you think the non-GMO feed is sprayed? And the person there at the feed mill said, absolutely. So the non-GMO feed may not be genetically modified, but that's no guarantee that it hasn't been sprayed with herbicides or pesticides. Do you want to comment on that? That's 100% true. And not only in the field. There's fumigation done to corn in storage and the same with small grains like wheat and oats. It's the whole chain. So not only are the crops sprayed out in the field, but they could have also been treated with fumigants and that sort of thing, even right before it's ground into feed to give to the animals. So there's a lot to that. Unfortunately, in agriculture in the United States, the seed that's planted, everything is like a cookie cutter, one size fits all. You know, the kind of seed that you end up planting in Minnesota is kind of what they're planting in North Carolina, too. Even the seed has fumigants and insecticides on it. So the type of insects that might eat that seed in various parts of the country, you know, may not be a problem in Minnesota, but it's a problem in North Carolina. But we end up getting the same seed treatment up here that they are using down there, even though we don't have the problem, because everything is so highly industrialized. And it's one size fits all. So everybody gets everything on their seed and is using a lot of the same pesticides in these cocktails and mixes because that's the way the chemical companies want to sell them because it's more efficient for them to have a one-size-fits-all rather than changing formulations for every little region of the country. Harriet, let me take a break. I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking today with Harriet Bihar. 
She's an organic farmer, inspector, educator, and the farmer services consultant for the Organic Farming Association. Importantly, Ms. Bihar served on the National Organic Standards Board from 2016 to 2020. She is one of the most knowledgeable organic experts in the country, and I am honored to have you here today. I want to go back to our discussion about feed and reiterate the importance of what the certified organic feed means versus any kind of non-GMO feed or conventional feed. And I think consumers are confused when they hear from a farmer who says, I can't afford the certified organic feed, I can't find it, but at least we use the non-GMO feed. But that's not necessarily a guarantee of high quality. No, it's not. And it also means that it has probably been treated with herbicides and fungicides and insecticides out in the field and even in storage. There's also even some of the herbicides, they kill soil life as well. And there has been some research that shows that the crops that are grown where there's been herbicide use have less nutrition because a lot of the micronutrients are bound up in the soil by that herbicide and are not then taken up by the crops. And so they are really deficient in some of the most important micronutrients for brain function, copper, zinc, magnesium. So it's not just the killing of the weeds. We share a lot of genetics with those plants. And some of the modes of action, for instance, for herbicides are they cause uncontrolled growth of the weed plant. And so then the plant just basically dies. Well, what is uncontrolled cell growth in humans? That's cancer. And so there's a lot of the mode of action in the herbicides and insecticides that are used that really have parallel problems in humans. What I've learned in going to organic farming conferences and hearing from biologists speak about some of these compounds that are used on quote-unquote conventional farms, or I should say non-organic farms, is that they do lead to poor health in rural communities. And also there are certain kinds of cancers that we see in farming communities or more likely to see because of chemical exposure. So all the more reason to understand that when we purchase organic food, whether it's livestock or poultry or vegetables, wheat, whatever, that's also a vote with our dollar for the protection of the farming and the rural communities. Absolutely. And for the greater environment, we have a dead zone at the base of the Mississippi River in the Gulf of Mexico that is a direct relation to the chemical use and runoff from the entire upper Midwest. Right. You know, we hear about this term regenerative and how this kind of agriculture is climate friendly. But I think we already have climate friendly agriculture. It's called organic. Yes. And of course, organic farmers would actually prefer to be known for all the positive things that they do rather than for the negative things that they don't do. And so that's really what brought me into organic was the conservation and the caring and 
it is very rewarding to work in concert with nature and see the benefits. And I've been on my property for over 40 years and every year it gets better. I can't remember the last time we used an insecticide. I don't know, it's been over 20 years at least, and I grow a wide variety of vegetables, but it's because I have beneficial insect habitat and I've been improving my soil health so my plants are much healthier. Weak plants attract insects. So there's all of these things that just brings a wonderful smile to your face when you see abundant, healthy crop. And this happens on large farms, you know, people growing livestock feed too. So many organic farmers say, I would never go back because this is a wonderful system. But what it does take is more management. We have the big brains, we humans, we need to use it. And using it means paying attention to your own ecosystem and paying attention to what your animals need. And that's what this new livestock and poultry standard rule is doing. It's really looking at what do these animals need to be healthy and productive? Because in all of organic, we're not allowed to use antibiotics. So we have to be doing preventative measures, which is lessening stress, giving them lots of room, giving them healthy food, giving them access to the soil and the sun and the air. I should mention that when you served on the National Organic Standards Board, you were deemed an environmental protection and resource conservation expert meaning that that is your area of expertise that you brought to the board. And there are, of course, other experts that serve on the board. But together, that board helps protect the integrity of organic. And I don't know any other kind of certification that offers this kind of oversight. No, there isn't that is as comprehensive as organic is. And of course, you know, we are climate smart farming because we're always increasing organic matter, which is bringing carbon back into the soil instead of putting it up into the atmosphere. The production of a lot of the chemical fertilizers, which are petroleum-based, not climate smart, but we are. And we're always looking at how can we improve our natural resources because we rely on the ecosystem services of our natural resources to produce our food. Harriet, if something were to happen to an organic farm where they were compromised, say, from neighboring farms' drift of herbicides that are being sprayed and drift with the wind or some kind of temperature inversion, or say there was genetic drift where there was pollen from a GMO crop that got onto the organic farm, is there any protection for organic farmers Is there kind of an insurance that protects them against that kind of drift? No. And this is a big issue that the Organic Farmers Association is looking at. We're trying to work with the USDA Risk Management Agency about pesticide drift. And it's not even just an organic issue. There's been a lot of issues out in rural America with pesticide drift from one farmer who's not using a certain type of GMO and then their crop gets killed. Even though they're a conventional farmer, they're not growing the right kind of seed to protect themselves, which is ridiculous. And 
of course, the chemical companies and the seed companies love that. It's like, well, then everybody should just use our GMO seeds so you protect yourself. But every state has different rules about pesticide drift, although all states have rules that you're supposed to keep your chemicals on your side of the fence. It's really more the enforcement of that rule and law that's the problem. So some states, especially out west where there's a lot of specialty crops like in California and Oregon and Washington, they have very strict rules. And if you drift onto somebody's apple orchard, organic or not, and it kills the trees or whatever, you pay a very stiff fine. And if it's a custom applicator, you could lose your license. But if it happens in Iowa or Minnesota or Wisconsin, you basically have to take the person to court. And you have to sometimes prove that they maliciously did this to you in order to get any type of compensation. And of course, proving malicious intent is really hard. Well. Wow. Yeah, organic farmers have a hard road to go, and I appreciate every single one of them for going those extra miles. We do need more protection. We need more research. And I know the Organic Farmers Association is really a voice for a policy that will protect and strengthen organic. And I will provide a link so our listeners can learn more about what some of the big issues are in the Farm Bill, as well as the key points that you laid out with the organic and livestock rule. I want to say another word about climate change mitigation, because I remember years ago being at a Moses conference where the farmer of the year was recognized for having so much organic matter that when we had a huge downpour of rain, which we see more now with climate change, but his soil was so healthy that he did not experience the kind of runoff and damage to his soil that neighboring farmers experienced who were not organic farmers. And that is true. I've seen it on my own farm. The more organic matter that you return to the soil and work to improve the biological life, both in diversity and quantity, those act like glue to hold soil together so it does not wash off. It also provides for a looser, loamier soil so the water holding capacity is greatly improved. And in times of climactic stress, organic farms do much better than conventional farms. In times of drought, in times of extreme rain, we can handle that stress. But if we get hail, we get knocked out just like everybody else. Right. And of course, we can't say every heavy rain. I mean, a couple of years ago, there was an area just north of me that got 11 inches in four hours. Nobody could get through that. Harriet, do you have any last message for our listeners? Just to say that this new livestock and poultry standards rule is really going to level the playing field between those farmers who are, are already doing it right and those that were trying to kind of skim the standard and not provide the quality living conditions that we as organic farmers expect and you as organic consumers expect. And organic consumers can then say, I know this organic label 
means high quality animal welfare. Thank you, Harriet. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Harriet Bihar. She's an organic farmer, inspector, educator, and the farmer services consultant for the Organic Farming Association. She is one of the most knowledgeable organic experts in the country. Thank you so much for your work. 